0: Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Today is Monday, October 10th. My name's Arden Swelling. Ben Nicholson-Smith is with me as always. Our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Uh Ben, what the hell just happened? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> oh, man. I, I Who have are we? No idea. <laughs> what is baseball? What happened to the Toronto Blue Jays? Uh, explain
1: life for me, please. I will do my best. I offer no promises on that front. I guess, first of all, thanks to anyone who's listening at this point, because it was that weekend was enough to take a lot out of anyone, any Blue Jays fan for sure. So thanks for being here with us, trying to understand what happened. I I don't know. Like, I I find it very difficult to explain. We do know the Jays were up 8-1 at home in a game that they absolutely should have won and they lost it. And that's pretty devastating for the Blue Jays players, for the coaches, for their fans, for everyone in the organization. I just think every one of these chances, when you have a healthy, young core like this, each chance is hard to come by. And so I I just don't see a silver lining here. I just
0: think it sucks and they're done. Uh, So two things. First of all, and I like I have trouble explaining this to people, but it's like I feel like I've like come out of a like a vacuum or like I come out of a dream, right? Like you think about it, yeah. What Ben, like the the lockout ended in early March, and like you and I and Shy and everybody else who works on this, and obviously like the Toronto Blue Jays themselves have been just like at it every day since. Things went from like zero to one hundred with lockout endings in early March. Seven straight months. Every single day at it, every single day I wake up just like, all right, what happened last night with the Blue Jays? What did I see? What are my thoughts on it? How do I contextualize it? What do I think it means? How do I connect it to greater themes? Like, what will I say if I am asked this about it? How am I going to write about it? How am I going to talk about it? What do I think about it? Like, every day just building into that night's game into the next contest which is typically coming like within 24 hours and then also like okay i woke up and i'm in baltimore and in like physical time and space i need to be in pittsburgh later like whatever like just all of those thoughts and just everything that just like consumes your entire life all that seven months for 28 hours of playoff baseball. Like, it goes from 100 to zero like that, and it's just like, whoosh, you're just like out of the vacuum so quickly. Game one started Friday at 4 o'clock, game two ended Saturday at 8.20, 28 hours, and it was just, whoosh, life changed, like it's, just, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it.
1: A hundred percent, and I think too, like along those lines, you know, even within Saturday afternoon, a period of, I think the game was four hours, and 10 minutes, something like that. 420, I think it was, yeah. A long game. <laughs> a long game. A lot happened in that game. We'll obviously get to all of that. But there was a period of time, like, the Gs are up 8-1. to one. I'm sitting in there there with Shai and Blair and David Singh in the press box. I'm going to Shai. Like, we're talking about flights, right? Because we're yeah. thinking, you, me, and Shai, we're going to go to Houston. It's like, yeah. okay, obviously, you know, we have to be ready for this. You know, they've got, at that point, all this momentum. They're playing great. It's like, all right, this is getting to the point that we need to be ready logistically to move our, again, our physical selves to Houston. So it's like, get things ready. Make sure that we're ready for that contingency. Of course, you're planning for the uh, game itself as well. Like I had written, keep in mind, Teoscar Hernandez in this game, he had the game of a friggin' lifetime. Yeah. Season on the line. His team facing elimination. Teo goes out and hits two home runs against the defending Cy Young. Swing and a drive again, to- What a game. So I had written this whole story about Tay Oscar, eight hundred words in. I know Shy had a whole gamer written. David had a piece written as well. They all just get scrapped. So you're sitting there like and, and then the the energy just disappears from the building. And of course it does. Because, you know, again, this is just I, I know it's easy to say like this team is young and this team is gonna do so many special things. We don't know that. They might miss the playoffs next year. Or they might have injuries next year that prevent them from reaching the playoffs in full health the way they did right now. And so I just I I'm not gonna try to put a find a silver lining right here. I just think you only get so many shots with a team this talented and now one of those shots is gone.
0: The Teoscar game it would have been because think about also how he hit those home runs. One of them was off a left-handed slider to Oscar Hernandez, who does not hit left-handed sliders out of the ballpark. A guy who actually like chases left-handed sliders at nearly a 60% rate. A guy who the night prior in game one had an absolutely miserable game against Luis Castillo, making early outs, chasing, grounding into double plays and big spots. I mean, a guy who like showed up in a huge way, and we're not even gonna talk about that. There's a million moments from that game. Yep. Matt Chapman diving into first base. We're not even gonna talk mm-hmm. about that. That would have been like an iconic moment if the, you know, circumstances Had been different, but uh, yeah, I mean, broadcasting that game, I was in the booth with Ben Wagner and it's like similar thing, right? Like I'm thinking about game three, midway through game two. And I'm thinking about, wow, Blue Jays are getting into like Seattle's bullpen right now. Like they are softening up that bullpen for game three. I'm thinking about the Blue Jays pitcher usage and just like, wow, like how does John Schneider keep like just enough powder dry so he can get through game three. I'm thinking about like Ross Stripling, who was going to start game three thinking about like, What's his outing look like? How much length can they get out of him? Like, how is he preparing for it? Ross Stripling literally was already preparing during game two. He was going over the scouting reports for game three. Wow. Like, he was preparing his attack plan in the Blue Jays clubhouse during game two. Like, he was mentally looking at game three and how he was going to pitch that outing. But, like, I th- just to, you know, To your point about trying to explain it and like feeling like you can't game two of that series and that series as a whole like it was just that was just baseball like that's just a sport that like is not always fair like it doesn't have to make rational sense. It's chaotic, like it's volatile, insane things happen. You're hitting one round object with another round object and like you can prepare yourself like as well as possible and the Blue Jays do and they think about these things and in insanely granular detail and try to push the percentage points in either direction and, and give themselves the best possible opportunity to win and to have outcomes come go their way, but it's still, a game and it's not always going to like as much as we like want things to make sense and want there to be one culprit one thing to blame one reason that something happened it never really orders up that perfectly like it's never that logical and rational it's just a crazy sport and crazy things happen 100 percent. and so you know i think with that in mind
1: be cautious of any narratives that come out surrounding yeah. this game right like it's you know there's so many little things that contribute and i think anyone who was in that building that day which you know the crowd by the way was really into it did a great job to get on Robbie Ray seemingly res- you know respectfully enough it's not like they're throwing things at him but they're chanting they're um, getting under his skin he was ineffective so the crowd did a great job so anyway from the crowd to the players to the coaches team staff anyone that you're talking to afterwards um, and I know you and I both had a lot of conversations after that game art and everyone was confused no one had a simple explanation so if the people in the building who are on the field for it, in the dugout for it, if they don't have a simple explanation, I'm just not sure that one exists and I'm not sure that we're going to do ourselves that many favors by seeking one out. So again, probably makes sense to be cautious if someone says Jays lost because X, Jays lost because Y. I mean, again, that that's not to say that the loss is in any way less painful or that the Blue Jays haven't lost something significant by flaming out in two games or that they didn't blow it because of course they blew it but I'm just not sure there's one simple explanation for that loss I
0: don't know that they blew it as much as like the Seattle Mariners took it you know as much as like baseball just baseballed um I felt like the Blue Jays clubhouse after game two like wasn't as down as maybe I might have thought it would be and I think that's just because of like how emotionally draining and how insane that game was, and how everybody to your point just kind of threw up their hands. Just like okay. <laughs> like that happened, you know, like you almost couldn't be that sad and dispirited afterwards. Like, I like and and look, like Kevin Gosman called it heartbreaking. Jordan Romano described the feeling as despair. Like these are you know strong words, absolutely. But yep. like I felt like the team honestly was more down after missing the playoffs by a game in 2021 than they were after this Mariners series. Do you agree with me?
1: I I don't agree or disagree. I I don't necessarily remember that closely. And of course we were not in the clubhouse last year, right? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. So so I'm yeah. even so thinking just
0: from like the Zoom avails that we have yeah. with guys, right? And just from the conversations True. even in spring when people were still like pissed off about it and really upset about missing the 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 playoffs by one game. Like people were still talking about it months later. A hundred percent.
1: I think they'll be talking about this one for a long time. I really do. But you're right. I think in the moment, like afterwards, and there's something about athletes here and baseball players where you spend six, seven months saying onto the next, wash it onto the next. And you do that after every single loss and even good teams lose all the time, right? So they've lost... 70 plus times this year they have that experience of saying okay wash it onto the next and I think some of that muscle memory almost takes over even after a huge loss now there were guys like Vladdy Biggio was in the dugout just staring out at the Mariners celebrating um, you know in the clubhouse after the game you see Manoa kind of just sitting there Chapman and Bo talking in hushed tones to one another Vladdy packing up his locker Pretty downcast. But then you have others who, you know, process it differently. It's hard to compare. And it's obviously unfortunate for the Blue Jays to even have to entertain such a comparison because I think in both cases, there's such a feeling of like unfulfillment because in 2021, they obviously didn't get the chance to play a single playoff game. And now this group has gone another season without winning a playoff game. So this
0: group has not actually won a playoff game together yet. We need like what? an entire episode to talk about game two essentially uh and we'll do it in the second half but let's just like talk quickly about game one and what happened there and just what we saw from luis castillo and we can get to alec manoa and his outing but like my goodness when a guy takes the mound with not one but two fastballs that he is sitting 99 with and then hitting 100 with and we're now talking about like A four-seamer that he is dotting away from right-handed hitters and just, like, right on the edge of the strike zone away from them. And then a two-seamer that he's, like, driving in on their hands and that has, like, giddy up right into their kitchen. And look, big leaguers can hit velocity. Like, big leaguers face upper 90s stuff all the time. The Blue Jays saw more of it than any team in baseball this year. The Blue Jays saw like 20.2% of the pitches the Blue Jays faced this year in 95 plus. That was the most across MLB. And the team hit 260 against them, 324 Woba. Like they did fine against premium velocity. The Blue Jays can hit really hard stuff like Luis Castillo was throwing, but the challenge and the thing that made it impossible that day is that it was two of those pitches with that velocity moving in different directions, put you in an absolutely impossible situation, and then, oh, by the way, let me just locate these sliders down and away. So I'm coming right up against you with that two-seamer and getting you to bend back in the batter's box at your hip, and then I'm making you lunge out at these sliders down away from you. And oh, by the way, I'm Luis Castillo. I have like this phenomenal changeup that I barely even need on this day because I am so perfect with everything else. Like when you take like four plus pitches with amazing command into an outing, Ben, if you put like the 1927 Yankees in there and it was like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and these guys, could they have done anything about against Luis Castillo? Like I just don't think that anyone was beating Castillo on that day.
1: A hundred percent. And not to get back into our Babe Ruth, uh, Luke (laughs) Eric debates here, um, because some might say that he would have no hit them. Honestly, the stuff from Castillo was the best stuff I've seen in person all year. I mean, I've seen Bieber and McClanahan and Otani, and we've seen a lot of really good pitching against the Blue Jays this year. That was the best stuff I've seen all year. When you combine it with the location, like you said, the two fastballs going 99, the slider, the change up, the setting, the stakes, the strength of the the opposing lineup. I know it's a very right-handed lineup and Castillo matches up well against right-handers, but to me, this was the most impressive pitching performance that I've seen in person all year. He was incredible. That's why you give up two top 50 prospects to get him. What a great trade by the Mariners to acquire Castillo and that now has pushed them forward to facing the Houston Astros. So, And by the way, the Jays had some interest in Castillo. I am led to understand that they were never... A front runner for him this summer, but they did have some interest um, in July. And clearly, this is why you go out and get a pitcher like that. And um, we can get to this later, but there were times that, you know, maybe the Jays' bullpen and pitching staff was a little short this series, could have used a little bit more, certainly, not to make this into a, you know, let's reassess the trade deadline. But this is a, an amazing move by the Mariners. And Castillo was as dominant as, as it gets. So to me, that was a game, you know, you talk about did the Mariners win did the Blue Jays lose it this is a game the Mariners won that you I would not fault the Blue Jays for this one they were just outplayed they were just completely outplayed
0: and they didn't make mistakes but Castillo was dominant and the Mariners earned that win well and I think the Blue Jays feel they made the second best offer for Frankie Montes at the trade deadline so if you're in on Montes to that extent I would imagine you have a lot of interest in Luis Castillo as well who's a better pitcher right and who like showed it in that outing and it like, it was interesting coming into it. He had a couple clunkers down the stretch against some not great opposition, right? Like two of his final three outings. He did not have that stuff that he had at Rogers center. But then, you know, as you said, I would put that up with like, yeah, the, the Otani outing against the blue Jays. And then also the one Dylan Cease threw against them in Chicago, which I was at mm-hmm. like, that was a crazy day for cease as well. But I mean, just with, I, and it's funny, man, with Castillo, like I, I didn't think the blue Jays had a bad approach. Against him. Like, I didn't no. think that, like, I, you know, a lot of times guys are overmatched and a lot of guys g- times guys were chasing because, yeah, like, how do you not? But I thought, like, the Blue Jays battled him, man. Like, Luis Castillo gave up more hits in that outing than Alec Manoa did, you know? Like, I thought the Blue Jays were, like, finding ways to get bats on balls. Like, they were not striking out a lot until I think, I think it was the seventh when Castillo struck out the side. But until that point, Blue Jays were putting balls in play. They were, you know, trying to work counts against him. They were, Doing a really good job. I just don't think that there was a good enough job to be done against Castillo, and then it's almost unfair when you say, "Well, all right, Castillo's done for the day. Let's go ahead and like change speeds on this lineup and make the speed go up to Andreas Munoz. Let's take out friggin' Luis Castillo who carried 99 into the sixth inning, and let's bring in a reliever who's going to throw even harder and go up to like 102, 103." I just I, I think that like Alec Manoa on the other side had to be perfect for the Blue Jays to win that game.
1: Yeah, and just on on Castillo first in the approach there, you see Kirk taking at the opposite field down the right field line, Springer taking it into the right center field gap going to the opposite way. So the Jays doing what you probably should do against the lead velocity and uh, staying back on it, making solid contact all they could do it was not enough and like you said I mean Manoa would have had to be perfect and he was not like he came out in my opinion a little bit too amped up he was throwing 95s he hit Julio Rodriguez you know he he obviously made a bad pitch to Cal Raleigh and Raleigh punished it and sent it over the wall for his second massive home run in the span of eight days for the Mariners um, also including his his shot that that sent them into the playoffs so yeah I mean Manoa was okay he was he was okay. He wasn't
0: great. He wasn't pinpoint. He wasn't bad. He was okay. Manoa, like you could tell in the first inning he was spraying his fastball, right? Like he was kind of missing with like four seamers arm side, like up and out, right? And so, you know, somebody who is uh you know smarter than me can tell you what it was mechanically that made that happen. If he was flying open or like kind of if his legs were in front of his arm, things just weren't quite connected but he was just spraying the fastball that's why he hit julio rodriguez right like that's just why he had that inconsistency and then you saw him kind of trying to work through it in the first inning and trying to make that adjustment alec manoa showed us this year like he is exceptional at making in-game adjustments whether that's For, you know, adjusting to what he's doing and his mechanics, his command, his location or adjusting to the swings he's seeing from hitters and the way that hitters are attacking his stuff and then sort of manipulating his game plan to sort of expose whatever their weakness is or to not give in to what they're trying to do to him. I think Alconeau is really good at making those adjustments. And I think he did ultimately make that adjustment after the first inning. It just came too late because as he tried to adjust in the first inning, I think, and this is my opinion, I think he started trying to sort of finesse the fastball and like force himself back into the zone and really get that fastball on the plate. And that's when he left pitches up. And that's when he left pitches over the heart. And that's what the pitch to Cal Rally was, right? Like as a right-handed pitcher, you can't leave a pitch in that spot to Cal Rally because Cal Rally has made his season on capitalizing on those mistakes from right-handed pitchers. All of his home runs have come against righties. They've all come against mistakes like that. He's a folk hero in Seattle right now, right? For what he did in this series. Yep. But I think like he he worked his approach in that spot and he got to his pitch and he didn't miss it. But after that, like after that pitch, we just saw the same old Alec Manoa, right? Like from the second through to whenever he came out the fifth or sixth, like typical Alec Manoa, like quick outs, you know, moving off barrels, like doing his thing, working at a good tempo. Like it, he was fine after that. I mean, he just was shaky in that first inning, probably too amped up. You saw him, Ben, come out for his warmup. It was a game that started at 4.07 p.m. He came out for his warmup at three o'clock. Started warming up more than an hour before first pitch. I think that the guy took the start really, really, really seriously and like really put a lot of weight on himself to pitch for like for his team and for a city and for a country and to like carry over what he had established in what should be like a season that gets Cy Young recognition, like as like consideration for the Cy Young. He's not gonna win it, but he should be considered for it. I think he probably just like carried a bit too much weight. And a bit too much pressure into that outing and maybe just like put a little bit too much on himself. It's a tough thing to like, it's it's tough to criticize a guy for that, right? Like you want that you want players to care, but I do wonder if like Alec Manoa carried just a bit too much weight into that first inning.
1: Well, and you could tell afterwards, you know how much it was weighing on him. Certainly he was pretty downcast in the press conference afterwards, even in the clubhouse afterwards, kind of just sitting By himself in his locker in the same same scene after game two. I mean, this one hit hard. Obviously, he wanted to have the chance to get out there and perform better. But you know, let me ask you this: like, what do you think? Because his line about pressure, something you put in your tires, that was a line that that obviously resonated with Jay's fans, excited Jay's fans beforehand. Scott Service took note, and in his pregame meeting, he said, I hope there's no pressure in those tires, kind of riffing off of that Manoa line. Kind of brings to mind the Vlad line, too, about the you know, last year was the trailer, this year's the movie. So, you know, do you think that next year, do you think we hear stuff like that from the Jays again? Or do you think they're maybe a little quieter? Do you think that's part of who they are and they're just going to keep, you know, going with that bravado? Do you think they dial it back?
0: Where do you think that leads? I, I hope we hear things like that again from the Blue Jays. I want players to be forthcoming and I want them to speak their minds and feel comfortable to say whatever they want. I think it's ridiculous the way that people have like taken that last year's, the trailer this year's the movie line and like made it this weird signifier for disappointment in the Blue Jays mm-hmm. season. Like I'm, like I'm just so sick of people like dumping on that quote and just like like it's just one of the worst things that like the sports fan and media community does is just like bringing up something that a player said. When a player says something interesting once, like just once, like bringing it up when things don't go that player's way on the field or when a team doesn't like be, you know, finish as the literal only one team in baseball that won't finish the season disappointed, when they don't achieve that incredibly rare goal and bring it back, oh, why would you say this in March if you were going to exit the playoffs in two games in October? Like it's so ridiculous. What do you want them to say in the spring training? Do you want to come in and say like you know well yeah like last year uh, we you know we we bitterly disappointed all of you and ourselves by missing the playoffs by a game. Uh, and I'm thinking that this season will probably end seven months from now in crushing disappoint- disappointment once again. <laughs> Get ready for the season, guys. <laughs> you know how bad we disappointed you last year. We're going to disappoint you even worse this year. Uh, see you in seven months. Peace. Like, just leave it, man. It's a quote. It's freaking 10 words that a guy said. Like, it means nothing. It means nothing. It's not a promise. He didn't come out and say, we are going to win the World Series. And if we don't, like, he didn't say anything like that. It doesn't entitle you to anything that this guy said this. It doesn't mean anything. It's a quote. It makes the game more fun and interesting and enjoyable. Why are you working against that? Drives me nuts. And it's the same thing with the pressure and the tires thing. There's some really good points there. I think also
1: worth remembering, it's not just the Jays. Like, you know, Edwin Diaz has his amazing closer entrance, right? We've discussed that on ATL, the Timmy trumpet, that whole thing. And the Mets are out now. So I saw this morning, I saw some memes where, you know, they they do the Diaz entrance, but then they overlap. They dub over, like, really sad trumpet music. And, you know, it's sort of funny, but it's also kind of cruel. And I think you're right. We, We want to allow for athletes to make bold statements, to be honest with us, for sure. And I think in an ideal world, we would encourage them to say what they think, even if it's a bit audacious, even if it's a bit bold. But we don't live in that world. So which is why I asked you the question. Do you think, you know, knowing that this is how sometimes these things get spun, and these guys are online, they they might not be on Twitter as much as you and me, but you know, they're they're online. So I, I guess I just wonder if they do dial it back. Not not that they should, not that I would want them to, but is do they maybe react and say, you know what, this time we're gonna we're just gonna keep this to ourselves. We're we're not gonna put it out there publicly in quite that same way, which would be a shame.
0: Is it even that audacious? Like, is it even that bold to just say, like, last year's a trailer, this year's the movie? Like, Or to pressure say something like, you put in your tires. Yeah, Is that so audacious, right? Like, right. bold it, would be like, this, these yeah. Seattle Mariners, Jamokes, we're going to, like, sweep them out of the city. We're not yeah. even taking them seriously. They suck. We're the best. They don't deserve <laughs> this. We've earned it. Screw them. Like, that would have been audacious and bold. Nobody said yeah. that. Right? 99.9% of sports quotes are just, yep, yeah, we're taking the opponent very seriously and we've got to earn it. Yeah. And we're trying to give 110% and like work really hard and blah, 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 right? And the 0.1% that is like just a marginally interesting. It's not even, these aren't even really good quotes, man. Like last year was a trailer, this year's the movie just isn't even that like inventive or creative <laughs> or interesting. Honestly, it's not even that great. Of a qu- yeah. Pressure is not something you put in your tires. Air is something you put in your, like oxygen is something you put in your tires. Tires have pressure, but like the quote didn't even make sense, honestly. (laughs) So like the fact that people like ascribe so much to these like little throwaway lines that athletes say to just make our lives like a little bit more interesting and then want to throw it back in their faces when they fail and when they're disappointed that their team didn't win, man, I like, I I could not be more fatigued of that, of that BS. I, I like that. That's a good take. Can you just share an opinion on this, please? What What do you? No, man, I agree with you. Like that's why I'm saying. <laughs> that's why I'm saying. <laughs> like I, I'm saying. I think that's a
1: good take. Um, so, do you? I, I what do you say? Answer your own question. Like you, you pose. So, yeah. what do you think? Well, I think first of all, you're right. We want athletes to be entertaining. Agreed. Okay. It is a shame that when they say something like this is the movie you're going to want to watch, you know that that gets thrown back in their face. It's a shame. And then to answer my own question, I think these guys dial it back next year. I don't think we hear stuff like that from them because I think that it's one more hassle for them to have to deal with potentially. It's one more downside. And I think that I think we see them go about their business in a not in a less fun way. But I think that publicly they're not going to put that stuff out
0: there quite in the same way.
1: That's a that's my prediction.
0: More boring, monochromatic like monotonous going through the motions cliches that's what you think well until they win because again this group has not yet won a
1: game right they have not yet won a playoff game so i think at this point they dial back the bravado until they win a playoff game not saying they should it's a long season again it goes back to our celebration conversation from last week you win a playoff berth a division you deserve to celebrate you deserve to celebrate. But yeah. for them to kind of... To to get to... You know, to use the team's hashtag here. To get to that next level. It's not just getting into the playoffs. You can't keep taking one little incremental step at a time. At a certain point, you have to take leaps. Right? Because otherwise... You know, next year, okay, great. They get to the division series. Then the LCS. Then all of a sudden, Vladimir and Bo are free agents. And you have got to the World Series. And like... But you haven't won anything still. So I think that if I had to predict... I just
0: think they dial it back a little bit more.
1: It's just so. And that's not a good thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing. No. It's not.
0: It's so tedious, man. It's so tiresome. It's entertainment. It's an entertainment product. At the end of the day, that's what it is. That's why we're watching to be entertained. And holy smokes, like if you were not entertained by game 2 of this series, like I don't know, man, like go try something else. Like go watch something else. I don't think baseball's for you. It was one of the best baseball games I've ever seen in my life as a pure entertainment product. Like I don't know how I I did not walk away from that unsatisfied. Like as a Blue Jays fan, you can be like on like disappointed that your team didn't mm-hmm. win, but like as in terms of like just competition and like athletics and just like well you know did you not get your money's worth with that game (laughs) (laughs) well i'll say this
1: it was incredibly entertaining i think that that game would have been a perfect game to watch as a neutral fan if you're a brewers fan if you're a cincinnati reds fan what a perfect game to watch and if you're a blue jays fan absolutely horrifying
0: like (laughs) what are we watching this for though it's to be entertained right it's like to take our minds off of like how crushingly dispiriting life is at all other times so like what that's what this is about so what what more did you want other than your team won I, I guess but a yeah, win there was yeah. a win in the game yeah just i think
1: our audience way. wanted a
0: blue chase win <laughs> uh we should talk about that game uh and we will and so much more when we continue on at the letters It continues on at the letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers are Nick Andrade and Christian Ryan. Uh, I've gone for a very long walk and uh, you know stared into the abyss and <laughs> recollected myself. People are going to think that was planned, Ben. Like I had no idea you were even going to bring that up. Uh, I-, I didn't that know was, that, that was I was going to bring it up either. I, yeah, it was
1: <laughs> just kind of spur of the moment and I started putting these things together and I thought... I wonder what Arden thinks about this. And I'm glad I asked. That yeah, was found a out.
0: great reply. It's about seven months in the pressure cooker of baseball and they had to let, let off a little steam. Uh, let's let, let off a little more steam because it's time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, brought to you by Miller the original light beer. Ben, we've seen it now. We've seen the new MLB playoff Format the new three-game wild card round four series. All three games hosted by the home team. Kind of interesting. Three of the four series were sweeps. Three of the four series won by the uh, the road club. But just what did you think of our uh, our first example of this new format? So you know, of course, it didn't work for the Jays,
1: and you can blame a lot of different things for that. Whether it's the players, the umpires, the you know, the manager, of course, we'll get to all that. But I I don't think you can blame the format at all. And to me, honestly, when you when you separate the result from it, and you just look at the format itself, I actually really like the format. I think three games is so much better than one. Because if you did run into a Luis Castillo or someone who's just having the game of their life, you don't want your season to end in one game um, at the hands of someone who's just performing like that a starting pitcher who's totally dominant i like that a team has to push win that second game really earn it the mariners obviously did they they played very well to get there and i I think that in years to come we're going to see a lot of game threes we're going to see more game threes and those games uh, have the chance to be really special too so uh, i don't know where you land on it but i actually really like the format after
0: one year it was interesting from like a strategy perspective and thinking about how teams would approach it, thinking about how they'd construct their rosters, you know, who starts game 1, who starts game 2, how do you deploy your bullpen, like do you shift, do you not shift? Like it was interesting to see how teams do things differently a little bit in the 3-game series versus the regular season. I still think it's really unsatisfying to have a 162-game regular season and then have three teams that qualify for the playoffs get only two games. Right. And like, you know, for as as salty as Blue Jays fans are gonna be after the the result that they experienced. I mean, how tough is it to be a New York Mets fan right now? And to see your team win one hundred and one games and lose the division in a tiebreaker to the Atlanta Braves, right? Like one hundred and one games. Like what you know, Cleveland win to win their division, like ninety-one, maybe, right? Like ten games less, something like that, maybe the one ninety two. I mean, and then the the Mets go out in a in a wild card series. I still think that's really unsatisfying. But like what I would do is like way way you know grander and never going to happen. In that I would like shorten the regular season substantially and expand the postseason substantially. And I would have like a one hundred and forty some game regular season, even you know whatever the number is that that makes the math correct. And then I would expand the postseason field and I would have like more. Like I would have longer rounds and I would do it sort of like just like a tournament, right? Like first round, second round, third round into a championship. And it's like maybe five or seven game series right from the jump. So that's what I would do. But what I would do is never going to happen. Here's an idea.
1: What if the two teams, if the two teams facing off in the wild card series are separated by more by 10 or more regular season wins, then the team
0: with more wins automatically begins that series up one zero. Sure. Yeah, you could do that. You could even make the series like just anyway, just the home teams up one zero, right? The, <laughs> wow. the home team's got to win one and the road team's gotta win two. See, uh, but that'd
1: be do... tough if the if the teams are really close in record. That would be like a massive advantage. But I kind of like it if there's like a big gap in regular season wins.
0: Yeah, but I mean, how much of an advantage was home field for the Blue Jays? They lost two straight. You know? I think indeed how much two... of an of how much of an advantage is home field for the Cardinals? Lost two straight. Well, it's not everything, but I think it's something. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we should talk about Game Two of the Blue Jays Wild Card Series because there is a lot to get to. But I, like, I do th- like just first of all, since we're talking about home field and since we're talking about like the advantage of home field, did you sense as I did that the Game Two crowd was like way more engaged than the Game One crowd and actually had an impact on the game at at several junctures. There's no comparison,
1: and this is not to, to you know, cast blame on the game one fans. Luis Castillo effectively removed that crowd from the totally. game with the help of Cal Raleigh, so they were out of it. and And that lead four nothing in game one. It felt like six nothing. The Jays got three runners to second base. That was it. It was a one sided game. So contrast that game two. The crowd is in it right away. The Blue Jays take an early lead thanks to Teoscar Hernandez. They keep adding on. The crowd gets progressively more into it. They're on Robbie Ray. They are making an impact. And I thought it was best case scenario. The crowd was loud. They were getting on the Mariners. They were supporting the Blue Jays. And this is, you know, a tiny, tiny silver lining in, in everything. Now those Blue Jays players have experienced what it is like to play in front of that home crowd and feel that support. They know that support is there. Tiny silver lining doesn't in any way make up for the disastrous outcome that
0: followed. Yeah, no, totally. That crowd was unbelievable. It's one of the most insane atmospheres. Like, like I've witnessed at Roger Center. I've been at Game Five of the ALDS. Like, I've I've been very fortunate to be doing this job as of you and to have been at every Blue Jays play, at you know, postseason game since twenty fifteen. Well, and I mean, almost was, every. Yeah, oh, oh, right. Yeah, we weren't in Tampa. I forgot about that. Yeah, we weren't at the Toronto. Yeah, we're, I mean, Bo Bichette will tell you those weren't postseason yeah, games. I agree so. with Bo. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, every postseason game at the Rogers Center, I'll say. And I mean, that's just up there. It's one of the most electric, amazing atmospheres I've ever seen. Like, huge credit to the fans. They were an impact on that game. Like, there, and there are so many junctures in that game that'll be forgotten and glossed over like we talked about like to oscar's game like the way that he dialed in his approach and wasn't swinging at sliders and then actually hit one out um you know chapman's slide in the first place into first base um a non-call for alejandro kirk late in the game could have been a walk right missed call behind home plate um the way the blue jays battled George Kirby late in that game, man. Like it was like they really made him earn that save. <laughs> they really made him earn what every everything that he got in that outing. Like that, the the, the plate approaches in that final inning were unbelievable. Dane Jansen had like this unbelievable series. I mean there's so many yeah. things that we won't even touch on, but I like we can start with like the the one the first like big juncture that everyone is gonna remember in a really big way, and that's top of the sixth inning, right? Kevin Gosman pitch count getting up. The inning begins, what, Ty France single, Suarez single, Cal single, right? And then Gosman comes back. He strikes out Mitch Haniger. He faces Adam Frazier, pops him up, and then John Schneider goes to the bullpen for Tim Meza, yep. brings in Meza, wild pitch, run scores, down in the zone to Carlos Santana, boom, over the left center field wall. So yeah. like a couple things that could have gone differently there. Bringing in Mesa V not bringing in Mesa and then defensive replacement in left, which was Tapia for Merrifield who had been hit in the head the inning prior, I want to say. Do you do either of those things differently? Well, I mean, obviously
1: with hindsight, yes. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. At the time, you know, I think. Man. Santana, too, we should mention, he had taken Gosman to deep, deep right center field, literally the top of the wall on an at-bat earlier in the game. So Santana, who's hit the Jays hard all season, clearly was seeing Gosman well. I don't have a problem taking Kevin Gosman out of the game at that point. I really don't, personally. Now, Tim Meza did not deliver, and that's unfortunate because he had finished the season really strong. And he had been really effective for the Blue Jays this season. And he just, he did not deliver. Wild pitch and allowed the home run. Um, And he did not deliver. Now, as for the defensive replacement, this was not, even though Merrifield was hit on the head, I get the sense this was just a a baseball swap. This was Mm -hmm. um, to bring in Tapia. And I think at that point in the game, they're thinking, okay, combination, offense and defense. Obviously, you're not starting Tapia against a lefty. So, you know, once Robbie Ray's out of the game, Okay, Tapia is likely to face some righties, get him in there. You're kind of splitting it down the middle at that point. You're saying, okay, we're going to get a little bit of defense and we're going to get a little bit of offense. I think in hindsight, probably makes sense to go to Jackie Bradley Jr. in that spot. Um, Didn't happen. And I wasn't sitting there thinking that at the time. So I'm certainly not trying to say like, this was the obvious move. But I think in hindsight, with having the benefit of slowing everything down, knowing how much the Blue Jays were up already... Probably makes sense to go to your outfielder at that point, your defensive stalwart at that point in the game.
0: Yeah, I think the thought was this position in the batting order is coming back up again, and we'd rather have Raimal Tapia's bat mm-hmm. there in, rather than Jackie Bradley Jr.'s. That's understandable. I would understand it more in a tighter ball game than it was at that point. I mean, at that point, it's nine to one, right? Am I remembering that eight correctly? It's eight to one, right? It's yeah. eight to one at that point. So I'm I'm probably going Jackie Bradley Jr. in that spot myself if I like really really thinking about it. It's like yes, there is an impact offensively. Like yes, Tapia's, you, you know, a better hitter at this point in his career, I think and shown you more this year. Um, but defensively, I'd rather have Jackie Bradley Jr. there in center, which is what's interesting about it, right? Because it wouldn't be Jackie Bradley Jr. playing left. For Whit Merrifield, it would have been Jackie Bradley Jr. in center and likely George Springer shifting to right and Teoscar Hernandez shifting to left. So the real question or
1: or maybe JBJ and right keep Springer in center. But I think you're probably right that they would have put JBJ in center.
0: I think yeah, George Springer playing banged up anyway. Right. Like I really do think it would have been JBJ in center, Springer and right, Teoscar moving to left. So yeah. then the real question is. The Cal Rally flare off Kevin Gosman that dropped in mm. front of a diving Rymel Tapia, who, by the way, left like an insane divot on that field. I saw it after the game. He, like, he made a serious impact with that turf. Good luck, Tom Farrell and the Blue Jays grounds crew and trying to clean that up. But would Teoscar Hernandez have gotten to that 55% catch probability ball? I, I don't I, I don't. Know. I don't think you can bank it. I don't think you right? can bank on it. You know, yeah, know, maybe, uh, you know, he's a,
1: he's a fast runner. Uh, it's, it's all about the read. It's all about the read you get. You can't
0: lock that in. You can't guarantee no. that. So I'll, I'll put that one aside and say, all right, so the bases are loaded, right? And Kevin Gosman strikes out Mitch Haniger. Tim Mays was warming. And I thought Meza for Frazier was the move. I thought not only do, am I okay with the Blue Jays lifting Kevin Gosman where they, where they did? I thought they should have lifted him a batter earlier. Adam right. Frazier has owned Kevin Gosman over his career. Coming into the game, Frazier was 13 for 32 against Kevin Gosman. And like, yes, small sample and like batter versus pitcher stuff. Like it's not worth that much, but I mean that it's worth something, man. And Frazier singled off him his last time up, right? Yeah. His last time up, Frazier had singled off of him too, right? So, and these, those two guys, by the way, have been playing against each other since college. Like, go back to SEC days, and those guys were playing against each other. He knows Kevin Gosman really well. So I thought Tim Mesa for the lefty Frazier there, and, you know, see if you can get your ground ball double play. Like, if you don't, you, you have Mesa in to face Santana after that, which, like, isn't an ideal matchup, but you feel okay with it. Turned out the Blue Jays thinking was leave Gosman in to get Frazier, which he did, and then bring Mesa in for Santana. I promise you that's a matchup they wanted and the Blue Jays have access to baseball reference. They know what the splits are. They know that Carlos Santana has hit better against lefties over the course of his career and that the splits are rather dramatic uh, in that direction in 2022. I don't know the exact thought process behind it and I doubt the Blue Jays are going to share their information with us. I would imagine it's something to do with the way that Tim Mesa's sinker behaves on the way to the plate and its action versus Carlos Santana's like swing plane and his path to the ball with his bat, I'm sure that the Blue Jays felt that there was something in that matchup that they could exploit. I think Tameza was trying really hard to locate at the bottom of the zone, and I think that because his first pitch was a wild pitch. His first pitch was like in the dirt, so I think he was really trying to hone in on that bottom part of the zone, and I know that also because you look at the pitch that Santana hit out, pretty good pitch by Tameza. Down and away, right at the knees bottom of the zone sinker for carlos santana to like bend over at the hips at this point in his career and seeing what he's done this year and somehow get under that pitch and drive it out of the ballpark that's an incredible piece of hitting on his part
1: that one is hit high to left field tapia going back all the way back at Santana from his stronger side takes Mesa deep. He makes the adjustment to go down and reach it. You see that back knee get to that pitch. You just missed the same location. Knew they were going to go back there.
0: So I guess like what I'm saying here is I really I really wouldn't criticize the Blue Jays for the move. Like I just think that the the moves made sense and and I think they had their reasons to make them. And I think they put themselves in the position they wanted to be in there with Mesa versus Santana. It just didn't work out.
1: Was it 91? Do you know offhand what the velo was for that Mesa pitch to
0: Santana? I can look it up. I want to say quickly. 91. Yeah.
1: Um, 91. So, yeah. Yeah. And so that's where it's like, you know, the, the decision makes sense. You don't know exactly what a guy's going to come out with. Like Castillo, for example, came out throwing harder. Manoa came out throwing a bit harder. Mesa, you want that pitch to be harder, ideally. 91's one's not very fast for major league hitters. I mean, we heard from Whit Merrifield. Carlos Santana didn't come out and say it. But I bet if you asked him, like... Man, can you hit 91? Yeah, he can hit 91. He's done it his whole career. So it's just like, you know, the the decision makes sense. The execution wasn't there to me. It's like, and I'm not saying it was a horrible pitch. It's not like it was center cut. But you know, ultimately, there's a reason that Munoz is so hard to hit at 103. Like there's it's literally 12 mile an hour difference. So you know that's and and Meza again, he's been so good for this team all year. This loss is not on Tim Meza, but in that instance, he did not execute to the peak of his ability.
0: I think the criticism at that juncture is player personnel, and is John Schneider not having a swing and miss option at that point that he could go to and feel okay using there in the sixth and be like, "Yep, and I've still got horses for later," right? Because like he doesn't want to go to you know Jordan Romano, his best swing and miss option in that spot. He wants to save Jordan Romano for later. So if the Blue Jays had just like one more like high velo, big action, big stuff reliever in their bullpen somebody who can miss a bat in that spot with the bases loaded and two outs in the sixth inning that's what they needed so i don't think it's on tim Meza, i don't think it's on john schneider i think it's on having just one less swing and miss reliever than you needed
1: i agree and we'll get to what happened later later but i i agree and i think like and look no one wants to hear me go back and and relitigate the trade deadline but we were saying this then it would have been useful it would have been very useful and they could have used one more arm and look like does anyone really happy like sitting here today being like oh my god i'm so glad that you know arovis martinez is still in the blue jays system and it's (laughs) like i don't know but maybe people are but like a playoff win would have probably felt pretty good too not and not to say that one guarantees the other it's so easy in hindsight it's not that simple but i know
0: yeah, right. Like, because we can, we can do all these things. Like, well, well, if they had had JBJ in there, would X have happened? And if they had gone to this yeah. guy, would Y have happened? If they left Kevin Gosman in, would Z have happened? Like, yeah, but if you do any of this th- stuff differently, do you just rip open an entirely new space time continuum sure. and all kinds of different stuff happens? Right. Yeah, uh, exactly.
1: And so, you know, I, I'm only going to second guess the J's on the stuff that I was first guessing them on. You know, so that's right. where okay, I don't feel like we were saying at the deadline they could have used one more arm in the wildcard game, they could have used one more arm. So, okay. So
0: so what happens from there? And also, as we said at the time, it wasn't for a lack of trying by the Blue Jays. I think it's fair to also say that, that they, they yeah. pushed for relievers. They felt they made good offers, but they didn't go as far in those offers as other clubs did, thinking about yeah. like, guys like David Robertson. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and ultimately, of course, you're going to try. It's your job to try. It's
1: also your job to get it done. It's not, you know, you got to get it done. Trying for relievers is not enough. You You either get the player or you don't.
0: So we move forward to the eighth inning, and that is where you have the Eugenio Suarez off of Anthony Bass. It was like a full count, and Bass gets right up in his kitchen with like ninety-six and he lifts a flare into left. Raimel Tapia doesn't get to it. He was shifted to right center. Again, Blue Jays hadn't made a defensive replacement for Jackie Bradley Jr. at that point. Tapia had batted an inning prior. I think the Blue Jays got a little bit greedy there and George Springer was due to lead off the bottom of the eighth. And I think they thought, all right, let's get one more George Springer plate appearance, and then we're bringing in Jackie Bradley Jr., right? Like, I understand that. You want Springer at the plate more than you want Bradley at the plate in that situation, but there is an alternate timeline where you make that substitution, either if it's straight for Tyopia, or what I think it more likely would have been would have been Jackie Bradley Jr. in center, Teoscar Hernandez, Well, maybe it still would have been Tapia and left. I don't know. Either way, it was Tapia going for that ball and left, and he didn't get to it. That's one decision. And then there's also not – well, I guess it's a decision going to Anthony Bass in that spot Mm -hmm. um, and not bringing back out Jimmy Garcia, who had pitched well in the seventh. My understanding is the Blue Jays were kind of operating on like two tracks there because in the seventh they had a three-run lead, right? And if the lead had stayed at three runs – I think Garcia was coming back out to face Suarez and then Romano was going to start with rally if the lead stayed at three runs. But then Danny Jansen in the seventh drove in Oscar Hernandez to extend the lead to four. And I think that's when the Blue Jays thinking changed and it was, okay, let's bring in Anthony Bass to face, you know, the, the first three hitters of the eighth inning and see if we can get through the eighth with Anthony Bass, who by the way, like top 10 reliever by ERA this season, very good over the last two years. Like, there's not a ton of guys in the game you'd rather have in that spot than him. He's been very good. We have to give him credit at some point for what he's done and how good he's been. He has velocity, he has swing and miss stuff. Let's get Anthony Bass to the eighth, have Romano for the ninth, maybe saves a little bit of Romano for a potential game three. But then Bass gives up the Suarez ball to the left that drops, you know, past Tapia. And then Rally and Haneker both go outside the zone. To put balls in play that like were off the plate i mean just a super unfortunate hard look outing for anthony bass when he doesn't get it done but just looking back at the decisions that were made and the balls are put in play hard for me to be too critical of it again
1: yeah so on this case i'm going to start with the trade deadline because here Good job of the Blue Jays. You got Anthony Bass. That was a good trade. I don't think anyone's going to regret Jordan Groshen's going on to be a major league utility player for the Marlins. Whatever. You got Anthony Mm -hmm. Bass. It was a playoff year. Good for you. And he can help next year. That was a very good trade. Bass was brought in for swing and miss stuff against righties. He just didn't quite get the swing and miss. He didn't quite get the swing and miss. So again, to me, I would never pin this loss on one player or one person, but Bass, for his role in this game, did not deliver. He did not deliver. He had a role. He was supposed to get swing and miss. Weak contact is better than hard contact, but it's worse than no contact. And Bass was brought in for some no contact. And so, um, yeah, again, not pinning too much of this on him before this moment. That, unfortunately, that's
0: on the player. I think if you go back and you look at the rally swing and the Hanegra swing, like I don't think that Bass throws those pitches any differently. Honestly, they're both outside the zone. (laughs) Pitches outside the zone. The Mariners did a really good job of putting in play. And then the Suarez ball, that's in the zone, but that is up and into Suarez. That ball had like a 79-mile-per-hour exit velo, right? Okay, and It's a lazy fly ball to left, and Tapia has 101 feet to cover and only covers 96 of them. That's tough to pin that on bass. Yeah, Yeah, well, okay, ultimately... You know, this is a results
1: game. And so I'm going to pin some of that on Bass. I am. It's a results game. You're in the playoffs. Maybe that's got to be six inches further outside. I don't know. I haven't watched the pitches enough times to say. But it's a results game. It's a results business. It's cruel. It's harsh. But to me, some of this has to be on the player. And in this case, it's Anthony Bass. Now, I will say that on the other side of it, and this is not a Seattle Mariners podcast, and it is not about to become one. So don't worry. I'll make this brief. But give the Mariners some credit, man. They're down 8-1 on the road eight one on the road and they come back like you flip this around and it's like what a remarkable display of focus and performance by the mariners okay that's done back to the jays
0: buddy extend it to the fraser ball off of romano so when romano finally comes in after bass comes out again another pitch above the zone and like Adam Frazier just like hacks it into the outfield. Like they did some amazing bat to ball work mm-hmm. late in this game. The Mariners did. Like give their hitters hitters yeah. full, full, full credit for what they did. So Romano's on now, right? Or do you want to say like, would you have made a different reliever choice at the beginning of the eighth, other than bringing up Bass? Oh, would, right no, uh, oh, would you have brought back Garcia back? I'm good with Romano right there. No, top the eighth, starting the eighth. Would you have brought back Garcia? Yeah, totally I'm, fine. I'm fine I with I thought- Bass there yeah totally fine with john schneider choosing anthony bass there yeah and then he gives up the three singles and he's quick and he's like all right done going to jordan Romano. Yeah. going to my closer for for six outs right adam mm-hmm. frazier i mean goes to left on a ball above the zone like i don't like well above the zone at 96 i don't know what the hell you want jordan romano to do there then romano comes back strikes out carlos santana strikes out dylan moore right barrage of sliders uh and the slider is working the break on it the velo on it the action on it the location it's his, best like, pitch. it's his best pitch and he was throwing it well and he had it he had it on the day and then first pitch jp crawford slider and did it catch too much plate yes but did jp crawford get much barrel on it hell no 70 miles per hour off the bat and he just lifts it to the perfect part of shallow center field slash deep second base where Bo and George Springer, two like absolute, gamers who are playing as hard as possible with maximum intensity and effort and aggressiveness are going for that baseball and they collide and they are sprawled out and both of them like neither of them are getting up the ball has trickled away all the runners were off at the pitch because it's two outs so the blue jays had no shot of doing anything anyway swing and a pop-up into shallow center springer coming hard and he will make the catch the ball is in, and three runs are going to come in to score, and the Mariners have tied it. And even worse, Buck, there's some injuries out there. That was hit into no man's land. Bo Bichette and George Springer collided. Tie ball game. How do you sum up what
1: happened on that play? Oh man, there's no way. Really, I think when we zoom out, that's probably the play that sticks with people years from now. You know, when people are talking about this season. That's the play where it's like the Jays were up 8-1 and then, you know, no one's going to be talking about the pitch selection by Anthony Bass. But we will see that replay of Bo and George crashing hundreds of times, unfortunately. I mean, it's that's the moment where it went totally sideways for the Blue Jays. And you cannot fault Bo Bichette, not fault George Springer. They are going max effort to make a baseball play they could not do it and and you know JP Crawford could not have thrown that ball any better it was perfectly placed it was exactly where it had to be to create maximum havoc to take the energy out of the blue jays to take the energy out of the stadium and from that point i you know it was even at that point but uh it was really tilted in some ways from a momentum standpoint to the mariners favor and the blue jays were on their
0: heels if Jackie Bradley Jr. is playing center field and John Schneider doesn't want to get George Springer that one more plate appearance leading off the bottom of the eighth, if he brings in Jackie Bradley Jr. to play center field, do things go any differently? I don't know, man. I, I, I don't. don't think maybe so. like there's a chance. Uh, I don't. There's think a so. chance. It's not a
1: guarantee, though. You know, you can dream of a best case scenario where JBJ gets like maybe a better jump and he's in there quick enough and calls off Bo and Bo peels away at the last second. Like maybe, but it's also possible it goes the exact same way or it's possible JBJ gets a worse jump and he's a step behind and there's no crash, but there's still like, who knows?
0: Who knows? I don't second guess anything that happened there. I don't get second guess the pitch. I don't second guess the deployments. Like I don't second guess Bo Bichette. Bobachette's just playing like as hard as he possibly can and trying to make it yeah. out with his team's season on the line. Like I will never ask a player to give anything less than absolute maximum effort. And that's what Bobachette was doing. Is it George Springer's ball? Like, is it the center fielder's ball? Yes. Yes, it is the center fielder's ball, but it's right on the boundary, man. Like, it's right on the boundary. There are certain infield defensive alignments where, like, the second baseman or the shortstop, actually, would be closer to that ball because of how you're shifted and just because of where you're starting from, right? So, I mean, it's the center fielder's ball if you're playing everything absolutely straight up in the way that, like… Infielders would be positioned in a video game, but that's just not it. It's real life and infielders are positioned in different places. So yeah, I I think it was like right on the boundary and I think that they both went for it as hard as possible and they both laid absolutely everything on the line and, and it didn't work out. Yeah, you had to
1: almost look away at that point. Like it was, well, I know you couldn't because you're in the broadcast booth. So that must have been quite a moment to, um, you're, you're, the game that you were calling, by the way, was much more eventful than game one when I was in there with Wagner. But, um, you know, I, I looked away. Like I, I was standing up beside, I think I was talking to a rash at that point, And I just looked away. I just had to, you know, it, it was in Springer or two, you know, we honestly at this point as we record this, we're not even sure what happened. To, to George Springer we know that he was hit maybe in the head neck area uh, Bichette's arm was hit really hard in that collision we're not even sure what happened to George Springer we
0: just know that he had to be carted off the field at that point yeah I we know I will so we know he was talking to his teammates after the game they said something to the Blue Jays clubhouse after the game so that's positive and that's encouraging, but yeah, he didn't look right as he, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as he was getting up or being helped up after that hit and being, you know, driven off on a cart, like my goodness, what a gutting moment. Like just, just unbelievable drama in, in yeah. this ball game. um Bo Bichette, I mean, an inning later is stealing a base at full speed, full effort, like running as hard as he can. Like he was banged up in that play man like he it wasn't only his arm like he had springer need him right in the jaw like that was a football collision and there's yep. boba like an inning later stealing a base uh at, at high speed and then you know after the game you and i we were both talking to him and just like offering like really you know uh thoughtful like perspective on his season and and like just mm-hmm. kind of putting like summon things up and like not you know sitting at his locker like broken, covered in ice, or you know, just like not like disheveled, like just like Bobachette ultimate pro, ultimate competitor. Like there, you know, people dissect Bobachette's game six ways from Sunday, and I get it. But there is absolutely no questioning that guy's compete level, that guy's effort, that guy's heart. I know this is like cliche sports radio talk, but <laughs> I really f- I really feel it, man. After watching him play the last two seasons, like every single day, the effort this guy puts in, the way this guy works. We see him before games, too, and after games, too. Like we see the commitment and the dedication and just like just the amount of energy mentally and physically that he puts into baseball. It's super, super impressive, man. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, you know, the consistency is there. Uh, He's a player who, I think, off the field, he's someone who's very controlled and very intentional, uh, very deliberate on the field. He gives, obviously, we saw in that play, he gives everything he has. Also, you know, Bichette's saying that this was the hardest year of his life on Mm -hmm. and off the field. And, you know, didn't get into the details of that in the context of the the post-game environment right there. But he was saying the hardest year of his life and also the most rewarding year of his life in a lot of ways so he's gone through a lot certainly and the results were there I mean you you know this isn't a regular season kind of recap podcast because of everything that happened in game two but he had a very very good year and certainly showed up certainly showed
0: up for the Blue Jays in the playoffs ninth inning Romano back out what happens he comes out and what's he do strikes out Suarez and then it's double to rally, fastball up, not his best pitch. I'm sure the scouting report said throw throw rally fastballs because that's what he was throwing him. he wasn't throwing him his slider and he clearly felt really strong about his slider on the day. So tough result when rally gets you with the fastball and then what he pops up Hanneker and then it's Adam Frazier again with like another fantastic piece of hitting against a slider down and in to a left-handed hitter again good spot. I thought, was it a little bit up? Maybe, but like it's Jordan twenty 29th pitch of the night and it was a similar location where he's like gotten swing and miss from Suarez, right? Where he got like weak contact from Moore. It was a good pitch for him on the night. It was his slider. Jordan Romano, like talking to him after the game was like man it's tough to get beat there you know in the way that i did when i feel like i pitched really well and i feel like i had my like good stuff like jordan amano will tell you there's been days this year and nights where he takes the mound without his best stuff and without his command um and gets good results where he's not feeling his best and the velo is not there and the movement or whatever he doesn't know where the ball's going and he like gets good results and he records saves but i think jordan amano really felt like on saturday he went out with his premium stuff and uh Still got beat. I think that's what makes it really tough to swallow. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, you know, you look at the results
1: and he did he pitch two full innings in the end? I don't know if you have the box score. No, he got lifted. He got lifted. Nah, yeah, he got lifted for Simber. uh, Right, of course. So Simber finished it out. But, you know, Romano threw 30 pitches essentially. He was out there in the high leverage moment. I think the decision to bring Romano in made sense. I think the decision to take him out made sense. His execution, it's hard to find a ton of fault with the execution there, as you're saying. And so, you know, the common theme here is like, I I don't, yeah, it's baseball. It's like, Like I'm not sure that there's, yeah, and Bo Bichette said that in talking to us afterwards as well. But it's like, you know, I forget who asked the question, but his answer started with just like, Baseball, like this is just this. It happens, and it's it's. I think that's the best summary, and maybe that's unsatisfying. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some people listening and saying, "Come on, guys! Like you, you know, you just we spent an hour listening to you just dissect this series, and there's no one to blame." But that's actually kind of how I feel. Like I'm not going to sit here and say like John Schneider cannot come back as the manager of this team. Like he blew it. No, that's not how I view it. I think he can come back. In fact, I think he should come back. I'm not going to pin this on any one player. It's devastating. They were up 8-1. They absolutely should have won this game. But I don't see it as a collapse. I see it as a crushing, crushing defeat. And they should have won the game. They should have won the game. They should still be playing. But I have trouble pinning this on any individual person or decision.
0: Yeah, and that's reflected in the 99% win probability going into the sixth inning. Up 8-1. You should win that game. And 99% of the time, teams you have, have to, to win that game. Yeah. <laughs> it's baseball man the game it's like i said at the off the top the game's cruel like it's it's irrational it doesn't always make sense it's not always going to line up with a perfect scapegoat in this like ordered logical reason why things happen like it's a confluence of a million different variables and, and factors that all come into play like i just i'm like you man i don't come out here and say oh they gotta fire the gm oh they gotta get rid of the manager." like Like Ross Atkins should and will be back. I think that John Schneider should and will be back. Like I don't foresee any major like changes outside of personnel, like player personnel, which is something we can talk about later. Yeah, and Uh, we'll get to. We have time to get to the player personnel stuff.
1: Yeah, Uh, you know, I'll say real, real quick on that front. Ross Stripling talked to him. He's open to coming back. David Phelps, you know, if he loved his time in Toronto, he's another free agent uh, potentially open to coming back if he plays. I think he would be very open to coming back to Toronto. But again. We'll get to that. We have months and months of off-season talk ahead. But yeah, I mean, even you mentioned Ross Atkins, right? Like the GM, like you. one
0: could, more reliever with swing and miss. Yes. Yeah. That's the one thing I'd and put on him. One agree. more
1: swing and miss reliever. I agree with that. And And at the same time, there's a 91-win team last year. It's a 92-win team this year. It's a good team. It's a really good core moving forward. They're in a good spot. We are going to see changes. We are going to see changes in my opinion to the roster, to the coaching staff. You know, all of that is likely ahead. But I think John Schneider it didn't work. It backfired. That is a manager's nightmare. That might be the worst game of in some ways of John Schneider's career. You know, like even if he manages for 20 years in the big leagues, that might be a game that sticks with him in 2042. Like honestly, it's that kind of game. That is a manager's nightmare does that mean it was his fault i don't think so i really don't i i just i
0: think it all went wrong but i don't think it's his fault and i think he's a good manager did john schneider manage any differently in that game than he did in the regular season right no. when he led this team to a whole bunch of victories over the second half of the year after charlie montoya was dismissed i mean i saw a manager in that game trusting the process trusting the information that he had right like trusting the plan that was made um adapting based on what's happening in front of him sure but like just being really convicted in his decision making and in like the way that the blue jays arrive at the decisions that they make it just didn't work out um but i don't think that it's like realistic to expect this team to all of a sudden become this like gut feel subjective decision making like group right like they're they're objective (laughs) right they're process oriented is who they are they're evidence based they had a reason for Mesa versus Santana that's a matchup that they wanted I promise you going into this series they talked to Tim Mesa and said hey there's going to be a moment late in one of these games where we're going to ask you to face Carlos Santana this is before the first pitch is ever thrown we're going to ask you to face Carlos Santana and this is how we want you to pitch him because we like this matchup and the way that your stuff plays vis-a-vis his is swing. I mean, this is what they do. And at the end of the day, it's still human performance, right? It's still execution. It's still like on the field. It's more art than science. But like Blue Jays management, and that's coaches, that's front office, that's analysts, that's tons of people who you'll never even know their names, believes that it is putting those players and those humans performing in the best possible position to succeed by being unemotional and objective and empirical in their decision making and then they let the results be what they be and they live with them but they if they follow their process they feel good about that because they're process oriented and i think that's what john schneider did in that game he followed his process it just didn't work out
1: and i think you know just as before we were saying be careful with narratives here which by the way if i hear a single narrative that wraps everything up and describes it in a satisfying way i will be sure to pass it on on at the letters i will be sure to do that i just (laughs) you know i i don't have one right now. And I think along those lines, be careful anytime that you see someone frame this loss as numbers versus got feel, just be careful because to me that says whoever's framing it that way probably has a personal bias against numbers and against yeah. analytics that they're using this game to somehow advance that to me. I just don't see it that way. And of course I love numbers. I also love gut feel calls. I love the human element of sports. They're both essential parts of the game You can't strip any of those away from what happened on the field. So just, I think, probably a word of caution right there.
0: When it comes to that human performance as well, like you, you know, there's no savant category for like 49,000 people at Rogers Center. And like, I know I felt it in like the radio booths and even in game one the lead into game one but i especially felt it in game two where i was like oh my i'm like my emotions are higher right now like I, like you know me man like i'm pretty one note most of the time like i was like whoa like i like i felt it i can't imagine what the players felt on the field dude matt chapman talked about like not feeling his hands in the batter's box after Teoscar's home run and right? that's matt chapman Matt Chapman, who is like one like, of the most in-control, composed players yeah. that we watched all year. He talked about having to gather himself.
1: Yeah, that's Matt Chapman. Because, I mean, there are other players where, you know, you could sense some nerves from some players. Even at the podium at times. Or you can just sense, you know, it's a it's a nervy time like for anyone who's in that stadium, in that setting. But Matt Chapman, to me, was someone who was like at the opposite end of that spectrum. Like, he seemed under control all season. And so if he's saying that it tells you something
0: <laughs> well and we talked about it coming into the series right that the blue jays were gonna have to have techniques and they're gonna have to have ways of kind of staying composed and staying within themselves and focusing on process and focusing on swing decisions and swinging at the right pitches and not the you know and, and not once they're outside the zone for pitchers incredibly like fine motor skill position right? Like just the littlest thing is off in your mechanics. So you just get the littlest bit sped up here and all of a sudden you're missing the zone, right? Like we talked about how they're going to have to have ways to sort of stay within themselves in those atmospheres and like what did we see in this series? Alec Manoa first inning is spraying his fastball, right? Mm-hmm. In Game one. Tim Mesa comes in in game two, first pitch wild pitch in the dirt and runners score. Adam Simber yanked his first pitch coming into the game. Adam Simber walked a dude. Adam Simber walks like 13 people all year. Like Adam Simber does not walk a lot of batters. He came in and walked somebody in that game and like yanked a pitch like I've never seen him yank a pitch. You know, like when Matt Chapman is talking about how he has to work to control his emotions and like stay in the moment. And that's a guy who's been in multiple wildcard games before and a guy who just naturally runs the very low heart rate. I I can't imagine what it was like for younger Blue Jays, for more inexperienced Blue Jays, for guys who hadn't been in that position before. Like This is a team where the talent is through the roof. The desire is obvious. I do just think that perhaps the execution was a little bit undone at times in this series because of the circumstances, because of the atmosphere, because of the stakes. And I think that Execution and Matt Chapman talked to us about this. Execution is like the hardest thing to learn. Like execution, executing in the moment is one of the hardest things to learn. How to do that at the big league level. It's something that takes time. It takes experience, right? Like finding your intensity and your focus and balancing those things in those moments. It's so crucial and it's so hard. And I wonder if a lot of Blue Jays sort of learned something about what that takes in this series. I'm sure
1: they did. It would be very surprising to me if they did not. And, you know, I think we might hear, we've already heard John Schneider and some of the players frame this as a positive, frame this as a a step forward. Yes, okay. I guess, sure, it's an incremental step forward. I still think this should have been a year where they took many steps forward. Like, dream big, don't just settle for like, and I'm not saying they're happy with this. Of course, they're not happy with this. But this should have been a chance to take many, many steps forward. And so, you know, to me, Arden, like as I look at this season, I, I have to say I don't think it's a successful season for the Jays. You know, I think that given the expectations, given the talent, they fired their manager and they got swept in the playoffs and they blew an 8-1 lead at home. It was a, a season where they had a lot of successes. It was a season where they had a lot of things go right. And it's a season that in many ways they should still be proud of as individuals and even collectively i'm not saying there's nothing to be proud of here and and maybe it's an maybe it's a media construct to say success or not success it's it's not binary like that but it's hard on the whole to look at this season you know fire your manager get swept at home in the playoffs and blow an 8-1 lead to me it's not a success
0: they're missed opportunities definitely yeah 2022 and 2021 right when you think about some of the talent that these teams have had we've kind of talked about it like all year why is the whole of this team so often less than the sum of its parts right like why do you have two MVP finalists in 2021 and a Cy Young winner 2022 again like Cy Young candidates on the roster like a lineup every day that has maybe one hitter in it with like an OPS plus below 100, some days nine hitters with OPS pluses above 100. How do you have like the you know a AL best offense this year, second only to the Dodgers? I mean, two absolute beasts atop your rotation. One of the best closers in baseball over the last two seasons. Like we don't say that enough about Jordan Romano. Like one of the like second to like class A, you know, like this guy, he's got a lower ERA over the last two years than Edwin Diaz okay oh it's lower like than liam Hendricks. it's yeah. lower than ryan presley they have gotten incredible performances and these are missed opportunities because you've let all that talent and like all that performance go by the wayside without achieving your goals in the postseason and because it's going to get harder going forward to keep this core together and to construct rosters because and again we're going to talk about this in a future episode but uh vladimir Guerrero jr is about to take a second trip through arbitration bo bachette's about to you know hit arbitration like the low cost surplus value years of this young core are very quickly disappearing you've still got it on manoa and you've still got it on kirk but vlad and bo are now closer to free agency than they are to the beginning of their Blue Jays careers. Like, the, it's, the clock is ticking.
1: The clock is ticking, man. Like, they've played parts of four seasons. They have three seasons left. They are We are more than halfway through the pre-free agency years of Bo and Vlad with no sign of extensions coming. So, you know, we may be more than halfway through their tenure as Blue Jays before they hit free agency and sign with the Angels, Cardinals, Yankees. Who knows? Blue Jays is not... Could be the Jays. Could be the Jays. But it's it's wild to think of that. And also, some of the big money guys are now, you know, Ryu, he's less productive than he was when you first signed him. Springer, who knows? Hopefully he recovers first and foremost to, to begin with. Um, but who knows? Gosman, you know, he had a great year. Is he going to have great years four years from now? Jays obviously hope so. He's showing no signs of slowing up and had a great game, should be mentioned, in game two. Yeah, each one of these chances, Brios, exactly, you know, six more years right there. So a lot of questions for this team. They had a great chance this year to do way more than they
0: did. And unfortunately for them, it's passed them by. And then you couple in the fact that there were not many developmental success stories this year. Like Alec Manoa, obviously like the biggest one and incredible that you produced in Alec Manoa. Like that's an awesome outcome. But the fact that Nate Pearson had another year like he did, the fact yep. that Thomas Hatch, Anthony Kay, um, you know, Bowden Francis like we can go on, Julian Merriweather, like the, the the lack of depth starters that were able to come up and impact this team, the fact that down the stretch your bullpen was your fifth starter. You were regularly throwing bullpen days, 92 win team. Like the, you know, Asin Barger had a very like interesting year in the minors. Cool. Like, who else from a position player side is really like putting Mm. upward pressure on this roster? right now yeah. like Obviously you layer in that good but yeah yes no Ricky them 20 years old at double a like yeah. yeah great great story but you're like advancing him aggressively and pushing him aggressively because it's like you have to you're looking at a rotation next year right now which is manoa gosman burrios kikuchi those are your four starters for next year two to- five Two of the massive, massive question marks, right? Yep. And I mean, we saw Mitch White's performance down the stretch. I have, I'm high on Mitch White. I think that there's, a, you know, a lot of untapped potential there and a lot of things he can do differently. But the performance at the big league level down the stretch was obviously unimpressive. So, like you, you layer that stuff in as well. And I agree with you. Like two missed opportunities in 21 and 22 to do something greater. Yep, no doubt about that it's a dour note (laughs) dour way it should be man if there's ever if
1: there's ever a time to end a podcast on a dour note it should be this time like they had an 8-1 lead at home when they blew it like there's no way we're gonna end this and have people feel that i hope people feel a bit better i don't know how therapeutic or what this was to listen to for more than an hour so thanks for to everyone who stuck with us for that long but like there's no way you were coming out of this podcast feeling like
0: well i'm actually happy about the jays now (laughs) Actually, it's a good thing that they had what the second worst collapse in MLB history. Yeah, you, I, I read that in 1929. Yeah, 1929, Philadelphia Athletics. Philadelphia Athletics, right? It was yeah. like it was a it was a name of a like franchise that was like they were they they had that name at that point. That's how long ago it was. Well, there's your silver lining. It could always be worse. It could have been 1929, right? It could always yeah. be worse. It wasn't that bad. There you have it thanks for listening all year everybody really i really do actually very very much appreciate everybody who listens to that letters who writes us lets us know on twitter lets us know in person it's always uh, very heartening to hear that people enjoy the podcast we enjoy doing it uh and we're looking forward to continuing to do it because uh while ben and i might get about 45 minutes maybe to catch our breaths here the off season's right around the corner And we got over-unders to recap. Uh, We got an off-season to set up. We're going to talk to Ross Atkins this year-end media availability on Tuesday. Today's Monday, October 10th. He's going to talk tomorrow. We're going to learn more. And then we're going to just spin forward into the abyss. So uh, thanks, Christian Ryan. Thanks to Nick Andrade. Those guys do great work. And we're with us all year. And we thank them for their heavy lifting. He's Ben Nookson-Smith. My name's Arden Zwelling. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time on At The Letters.